this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. What's going on, my fellow reef builders? Welcome to another session of reef therapy. I'm Jake Adams. And I'm Mark Vanderwall. And what are we going to talk about today, Mark? Uh, reef keeping tricks and hacks. Um, <clears throat> I guess spend a little bit of time on things that um, we we don't think work as much as people think. And then also just stuff that we have done over the years, I guess, and some of it might be obvious to some people, but I'm always very surprised when you take something you do that you've been doing for years for granted and somebody goes, oh, wait, I should, you know. So um, <clears throat> I, I think it'll be a good mix. I, I'm sure we'll cover some things that people are may already be aware about uh, or some reef keepers, but hopefully there's some little tidbits that are, are, are good. And that's a great point. You know, I feel like the reefers that have become... Uh, diehard listeners of Reef Therapy have a lot of great information to share. There's been some really informative comments on uh, our videos, and I've learned something from them. And so I definitely want to encourage everyone to, once you've listened to the entire episode, to chime in with some of the tips and tricks um, that you think have mattered a lot um, in your reef keeping experience. Um, so I think I have a, a pretty long list of uh, tips and tricks, you know, same yeah. with you. Yeah, I mean, I don't run a whole studio of reef tanks, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but but to your point, I'm actually, I was thinking about that earlier today. Uh, I'm, I love the comments, but I'm especially looking forward to this one because I'm always a sucker for any type of life hack, right? Like little tips and tricks and stuff. So, Dude, there I'm, are some good ones out there. Like yeah. no one is brainy enough to come up with them all, like... Of all these hacks, I've come up with a handful, but I've learned from you and from the entire reefing community over a couple decades. And um, there's just some things that I do all the time that really help my day-to-day -day reefing experience. But I think I want to start off with a couple that we both agree are not actually hacks. You yeah. want to kick it off? Uh, sure. Um <clears throat> Do you want to, should we talk about the elephant in the room, the big one? Yeah, let's start with that one. Uh, CO2 scrubbers. I, you know, it's so strange that the concept or the uh, technique for using soda lime to scrub a carbon dioxide from the air going to your protein skimmer was introduced more than 10 years ago. And just literally in the last year or two, and it seems like the last few months, it's just... As we've participated in the uh, discussion in increasing pH, people have looked towards this approach to try to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide going into their aquariums, lowering their, their pH. And man, I, I just, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> I'm not feeling yeah. it at all. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I think that it's a diminishing return. I, I think the, the, the amount that it changes the pH for the um, frequency of having to change the media uh, and just the complexity. 
I mean, it's not complex, but just having yet one other piece of equipment to maintain, I don't think the gains are worth it. Uh, you know, if if it made significant gains in your pH, um, and I guess that depends on the tank size and every, a lot of factors, the pH or the, sorry, the CO2 levels in your house, it, there's some variables in play, right? But I, I just, from the, I have not done it myself, so I guess I should put that caveat out there. I've not experimented with it, but I've been watching it pretty closely and online, which is people that are doing it, and I, I don't understand the the marginal benefit uh, that you're getting I'm, from it. I'm just going to put it out there that within a few years, no one is going to be using this technique outside of you know, extreme circumstances. And just to bring the listeners up to speed, um, a CO2 scrubber is uh, a form of soda lime that's usually used in some kind of sealed canister, just like you would use with a reverse osmosis unit. And the idea is that you have your protein skimmer draw air through that canister to reduce the CO2 going into your tank, thereby you know increasing the pH of your aquarium water. And this can be probably most helpful in the depths of winter or the heights of summer when all the doors are closed, trying to keep it you know cold or trying to keep it hot, um, depending on the season. Um, and there's some also tricky you know things that reefers have come up with to have like a recirculating design where the air that's passing through the co2 scrubbing canister is actually being drawn from the protein skimmer which you know might buy you a, a little bit more time but in the best of circumstances i've only seen about a 0.1 uh, rise in ph over a week at which point you have to replace the media. And it, it's, we're not even talking about cost. We're just talking about hassle <laughs> of, of replacing that media. But the cost associated with it, depending on the size of your tank or how much air draw you have, it's, it's just, to me, it's just not uh, a reasonable method for increasing your pH. There's so much more low-hanging fruit that you can pick from to increase your pH. And, yeah, I'm just not feeling the CO2 scrubber uh, trend right now. Yeah, and I guess I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I always get a little bit suspicious of anything that suddenly gains a lot of traction that requires you to buy something over and over and over, right? You're, you're creating a market for this subscription model of, hey, you've, you know, like, I got to order my, my CO2 scrubbing media again. And, and I know that people have figured out cheaper ways to buy it, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> I mean, e even just cost aside, um, it's just it's just not really efficient way of increasing your pH. If you're going after pH, um, and we don't want to make this a whole conversation on yeah. pH, I think we're going to have an episode like that in the future. I know people are already asking. Um, it just it's just not really economical, um, especially if you have the recirculating design. You might have some dangers of pulling. Like if you're say your protein skimmer overflows and you have a recirculating design, and you start to pull that water through the media, and then that goes in your tank, kiss your kiss your corals goodbye. You know, and I, I just feel like. The most efficient thing you can do, which I'm officially uh, naming here, is using a snorkel on your reef tank and routing your air intake from outside. You know, natural CO2 levels these days are around 360 parts per million. Um, and I know there's a lot of folks who say, oh, you know, I can't get to my attic, I can't get outside, but I think you, 
there's a lot of creative ways to use the semi-rigid tubing that's used in uh, RO units to discreetly route the air intake from your protein skimmer. Um, because I, I've created like a common snorkel for the entire studio, so I don't have to route every single line outside. So I've got a half inch line of pecs that runs down the center of the studio, and I just branch off from there every time I add a protein skimmer. And, you know, that buys me about 0.1, 0.15 without doing anything else and no media to replace. Yeah. And if I wanted to take it a little bit further, I could add some uh, CO2 scrubbing media on the intake, but I, I get my pH up high enough with just proper calcium or a calc reactor uh use yeah and i'll i'll say this i haven't done the snorkel bit just because every time i go down that rabbit hole i start to think about um I, you know i live in georgia we got a crap ton of pollen sometimes we get uh you know i, I there's pesticides stuff like that so i'd have to be I'd want to filter it. I want to do some stuff. And then I'm just like, yeah, screw it. Never mind. I, I've, I've been I don't, there. You know, Colorado is super dry. We just yeah. have a handful of pine trees around. And, uh, you know, I have a, a pre-filter on my air intake. Yeah. Um, so I don't have that concern. But there has been a lot of anecdotal evidence of folks um, having coral troubles by pulling air from outside that seems to be uh, have a connection with, you know, pollen release from having living in a really wooded area and i remember i used to live in atlanta man and the the every car was yellow for yeah. about a month yeah i mean you you've got the perfect climate even for like a is it a heat recovery ventilator or hrv because the air outside is so dry that even if you ever felt the need to increase your dehumidification just an air exchanger would do that for you right um whereas even in my case the air outside is super humid. So I don't, you know, I'd have to figure that out even if I wanted to use like a heat recovery ventilator. And I know they have solutions for that, but it, it does add some more complexity. Um, but also for me, it's like, is this the new number we're chasing? You know, <laughs> it's pH. Well, again, um, there's, it, there's, let's, let's. I'm not a coral farmer, right? Right, right. So it's, if you want just like a basic display, yeah. don't worry about pH. Do what you've always been doing and don't listen to people telling you what you should be doing. Um, but if you're chasing the numbers, CO2 scrubbers, I, I'm telling you right now, like people are going to know better within a few years, but sometimes trends take a long time. So I'm saying with about five years, it's just not going to be a thing, um, except for in extreme circumstances. All right, one more that I have in mind on things that don't work. What do you got? Um, this goes along the lines of like fish disease crap. Uh, I feel like this hobby is always trying to find a lazy, easy solution, and uh, yep. or, you know, mm -hmm. um, garlic or reef-safe ick treatments. Uh, you know. If that's if that stuff worked, like nobody'd be quarantining anymore. Nobody would you wouldn't have a fish disease thread or, or for sub forum on your favorite reef forum. I mean it just the stuff doesn't work. <laughs> I love how you phrase that. If it worked, then people would just would just stop quarantining. Your store would just sell you this anti ick medication right away as soon as you bought a powder blue achilles or regal blue tank because those guys are just ick amplifiers um but yeah i mean i, I mean i don't want to knock any of these companies and like you kind of know that it does work in hyper controlled situations 
but that's not what our reef tanks are and if they really really worked we wouldn't still have so much questions and discussions about quarantining reef fish well i just feel like they're taking credit for something that isn't theirs because um i i don't want to i mean this is a whole other reef therapy we could do about you know the pros and cons of quarantine but i'm a pro quarantine person but i don't sit there and look down you know at folks that go for the ick management approach right um that seems to work for a lot of people as well and i think when these people are like dump this liquid in your tank what's really happening is that you're going into eventually not because of the medicine just because it's just going to happen whether you dump that bottle in or not you know you're going to have uh the odds are that some of your fish are going to survive right and they're going to be able to um, manage the ick and eventually the ick sort of diminishes and and doesn't become a problem anymore until you have like some major stressor event right like a power outage or something stressors or certain fish that are really susceptible to it but all it uh, takes is one person to see that 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 gradual thing happen and go oh it's this bottle i bought that i dunked in there like that's why it happened right so you're always going to get that anecdotal person that says it worked yeah and um they're so they're getting credit for something that they didn't actually you know for for a, a solution that they weren't responsible for and the same thing with with garlic do i i believed in garlic as um a prophylactic treatment for so long and over the years i realized eh, you know there doesn't seem to be really any different any difference between fish that i have fed you know food that's been spiked with a concentrated garlic extract and fish that i just fed whatever and i think it was like five six years ago there was actually a peer-reviewed paper that demonstrated that garlic doesn't do squat for parasite prevention right (laughs) I, I remember it can be a good um, uh, appetite stimulant sure. for fish. Garlic can do that. It can get fish to start you know, looking at certain foods that they might not otherwise. But as far as um, a prophylactic treatment for uh, parasite prevention, that's just not a thing at all. That's been proven by science. Yeah, I've... I mean, I've tried it, you know, I've tried it all. I I, I was going to say beta-glucan. That was one that everybody started uh, buying from herbal nature remedy stores and, like, adding that to their their pellet food because, you know, it it boosts their immune system, and I don't know. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. Um, But, yeah, I just – it's – it's because quarantining sucks, right? Uh, or going through it, the dump and prey method and losing expensive fish and sitting there. Like like the hard part of that one is you just have to sit and hope, right? Just feed yeah, the hell out the, of your the fish. The hope and pray. The hope which, and pray method. I actually, you know what? Her, you know? I don't think quarantine is nearly as bad as people say. I don't have one. don't have two. I have three quarantine systems. i got two 10-gallon hospital tanks where fish go in first just to make sure, give them a week to you know out you know for any outbreak to to show up and then they'll go into a you know long-term quarantine system and i don't even worry about the cycle man all for for like about a week i'm not feeding the crap out of the fish and it's just not that bad but i i, I get if you get a nano and you're in like a one-bedroom apartment and you're like oh, man right. i gotta set up another tank then i get it um but then the guy that is installing the co2 scrubber and installing like airlines to his attic and 
you know, doing all that crazy stuff. Like if he can't fit a 20 gallon in a corner somewhere just right. to quarantine some fish, like, come on, man. Um, come on, man. Come on. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> just so, please step over this airline while you go into my dining room, you know, but it's like, yeah. Right. Anyway. I uh, you know, so that, that was, I don't know, like I said, I don't want to give too much airtime to things that don't work. Those are yeah. the only two that, that really stood out to me, especially in the current uh, reef aquarium climate. And then I think we can uh, jump into some of the things that actually work. So mine aren't, um, <clears throat> mine aren't really uh, hacks in the sense of like, this is a better way to do this, but just weird habits that i've developed that's what we're talking about and like okay. i said we've been doing it for so long that certain things that might seem simple to us and just like you know second nature i think uh, a lot of folks will get some some use from okay um all right so i'm gonna go down my list we don't have to discuss all of these you know, oh i, I have show and tell i brought props man oh you brought props <laughs> for some I, I brought one prop too this one's a cool <laughs> one and you know the first one i've been wanting to talk about but i haven't it's it doesn't really warrant a post because i don't think the manufacturers would love this is i mix and max my mix and match my algae scraper magnets Mm. There are certain scrapers that are better on the inside, and then there are certain scrapers that are stronger and easier to grip on the outside. And if I'm being perfectly honest, the Tunzi scraper, um, it's got a, like a fiberglass-infused plastic blade. That thing is like self-sharpening. I will get a solid year of regular use from the Tunzi Care magnet, but it... Even with the new floater device, I can't remember what that's called right this second, um, it just it doesn't hold on to the tank quite that great. Mm. And so I will put a magflip magnet on the outside to have a bigger grip on the Tunzi Care magnet on the inside. And for tougher algaes, I'll use like a larger, much stronger magnet on the outside, and then I'll use the magflip uh, metal blade on the inside. I know that's not for everyone. I mean, I've been collecting algae magnets for a long time, so I can do this. I can do this mix and match. But it's one of those things if I use, I don't think I use any algae magnets one-to-one, -one, except maybe a, a one or two nano magnets on some of the smaller tanks. You didn't know about that one, did you? No, that would, I'll admit, that would drive my OCD nuts a little bit. Like, everything's got to match. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but I see you your don't point. Really see I do the see the internal your magnet. Yeah. I don't really see it. But the handle on the larger mag flip it's just it juts out you can really get your hand around it um it's just ergonomically it's just it's strong and you can really get you know a good grip on it and it just makes cleaning the algae off the glass just that much more enjoyable and that much more effective right there's nothing more frustrating than yeah. having a strong algae magnet that's leaving traces behind i love the tunzi care magnet but uh, I was not happy with having the narrow handle on the outside. It's a tough, it's a Dude, tough it was, thing. Yeah. So, <coughs> so that foam, you know, they give you two pieces. So it, it's, it's too big. It is it's too big on the outside. I, yeah. I, I don't mind it too bad, but yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, and then, and then the way it attaches, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but it's got these plastic strips that go over the, um, the, the soft felt. So, mm -hmm. I got a little worried, like, ah, oh, you know, am I going to pick up some dirt one day with that and scratch? So then I, then I started rigging it up with like, you know, furniture mover pad type or not furniture, but like, um, stuff you attach to like cabinet doors and stuff to right. try to I gotcha. 
not because it was like the plastic was like squeaking and stuff uh, but um so i do use my i repurpose a lot of old magnets um but what i like to do with them i'm sure lots of people have done the um glue some uh, egg crate to it and make a magnet rack right but um i i like to get like a two inch uh pvc coupling and i either super glue it or use something to glue it and that becomes my feeding ring um yep nobody makes a i mean somebody's gonna prove me wrong but i just have not found a feeding ring that i've been happy with and i like that works best for me there's there's been a few by magflip and eShops lately but it's like okay. 20 25 bucks man i already got magnets and pvc you know i can slap that together uh you know pretty like drunk and hung over with some super glue no yeah. problem but when while we're on the topic of magnets magnetize everything magnets every freaking where but before you go magnet crazy um you always have to be suspicious of them no one's magnets are so sealed that water will never get inside that's just not a thing you might think that plastic is you know waterproof but it actually isn't it takes a certain grade of plastic that's very expensive to never allow any moisture in and on a long enough timeline every magnet will fail unless it's actually sealed and like really thick epoxy and done properly um but that caveat aside glue corals straight onto your magnet i got a bunch of corals that have been you know floating around on magnets for a really long time i got coral colonies that have just like lived their entire existence on the um some of the stronger magnet mounts by Cche and tunzi mm-hmm. and i actually have the first magnet I ever glued a coral to. This was like my second coral frag. Obviously it didn't live, my acropora frag. This is before fragging was a word, right? It was just a small, what we would call small piece. But I mean, when I was like 15, I glued an acro to, I glued a small table acro to this. And this is like an iron magnet. You can kind of see like a little bit of the redness coming through. Um, but yeah, just there's so much you can do out there with spare magnets, but always make sure that they're not ruptured in any way. It's it's really fun and enables some very creative coral placement and just about anything you can think of. I'm glad you mentioned the, the feeder ring. Yeah, that's a, I, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I don't like the ones that float that are real shallow. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can get like some depth. So the, you know, yeah. Anyway. Um, so here's one that's, this is like the biggest show and tell, but, um, get a super shallow, uh, Rubbermaid mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm all about the wet skimming, man. Every once in a while. Um, snap. Well, we got to save some of that for a protein skimmer techniques oh, session of reef right. therapy. But tell us, I mean, just give us a little intro. What's uh, what's the thing for? Well, so, I mean, the simple, you know, applicable hack is that, you know, when you use epoxy or even uh, if you use like a red slime remover, right, your skimmer is going to go nuts, right? And then it's like, oh, I'll do, you know, some 20% water changes. And I don't know about other people's experience, but like usually I'll do like three 20% water changes before I actually get the skimmer to settle down. And what's been way easier is I mix up a batch of salt water and then I just let the skimmer overflow. Like I, I have like a extension hose that I can attach to the skimmer cup. And, you know, this thing can hold, I don't know, what is it, like 12 gallons? And I just let it go to town for a bit. I mean, I keep an eye on it, right? Check on it every half hour or so. 
And if you flood your carpet, it's not my fault. You know, please be mindful if you do this. But, um, and then what you're doing is I feel like you're removing the actual things that are causing the bubbles to, to foam and, you know, the, what's the word? Um, Surfactants. Yes, there you go. Um, you're actually removing them more efficiently and then you're replenishing that with salt water. And that to me is a lot less work than, uh, you know, uh, doing a bunch of large scale water changes. I'm gonna, I want to save this for a session just on protein skimmers. But definitely, I, I wish there was a more um, reliable way to do like a 20% wet skimmed water change. Yeah. Right? People are doing just water change of straight water. Like, oh my God, if you could actually wet skim out 20% of your water and just super like really clean up your water and then replenish that automatically, that would be awesome. But let's, let's save more of that in-depth talk for just a... Uh, well, that's... Yeah. I was going to go there about, you know... That initial solution led me to think, huh, you know, about, um, you know, if you want to just do, if you want to get the most bang for your buck for a small water change, right? Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that, I guess. Well, let me talk about a hack that I came across. This is absolutely in the hack territory. Um, on just a, like a TikTok video, this guy was drilling masonry, bro. And you know what he did beforehand? He took his masonry bit and he, he pressed it down on like a fine sponge to create a perfect cylindrical, uh, you know, really porous sponge to go inside of his hole saw. Do you see where this is going? Hmm. Okay. And then when he went to go drill the masonry, he just took the sponge, filled it with water, stuck it in the bit. And as you press down, you are slowly applying water to the surface that you're drilling. Ah. So I've drilled a lot of glass tanks, and it doesn't take that much water. I have not tried that you know, um, sponge-watering glass hole saw method, but I thought that was super cool, super interesting. I guess it really depends on how thick a glass you're drilling um, because, you know, you don't want to run out of water. But I've actually I, – man, I've done some silly things. I have drilled glass tanks of reef tanks that were set up by lowering the water level – and then using a small little, like a, a, a syringe tip from our test kits, in my mouth to gradually <laughs> spit water where I was drilling. <laughs> <laughs> Not even kidding. There's pictures out there to prove it. Oh, man. I, I've always just um, used like a, a putty and created like a little swimming pool. Yeah. That's, um, that's probably what most people should do. It's... I don't know. I don't know if it's as effective because that water temperature will eventually not be cool anymore. But uh, yeah, it worked. Um, well, it's it's all it's all relative. Yeah. All right. Let me throw another one out there that I'm working on right now. So, I mean, I love control as much as the next person, but I don't want to go to elaborate lengths just to achieve a certain result. And um, that's really true right now, where I have the most basic calcium reactor possible uh, using a Seachem Element CA calcium reactor mm-hmm. with no probe. I'm just like straight freestyling that thing, you know, and just periodically um, testing the effluent that's coming out. And on the flip side, I also have a you know very expensive Deltec Twin Tech, which is like automatic but uses a floats 
switch to keep a saturation state. So I'm trying to bridge the gap a little bit. So I've been thinking about for a long time of, so all my calcium reactor effluents, all of them, they go into a secondary chamber so I can keep track. Like even if the protein skimmers or the calcium reactor is really functioning well, I always have a little chamber where I can test the pH of the effluent that's coming out. And for a long time, I've wanted to try out one of those pH uh, checkers that are available for planet tanks. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. They look like a little it's like, uh, it's, it's raindrop like a U, or something. It's, it's like a glass uh, U-shaped looking bell thingy. And in a planet tank, um, as you're dosing carbon dioxide, it'll tell you, you know, if you're alkaline, neutral, or acidic. It's, it's very crude. So blue is going to be alkaline, green is going to be neutral, and yellow is going to be acidic. And so uh, I just very recently this week put one in the, the secondary chamber of the secam element ca calcium reactor so i could know at a glance that the effluent was um acidic enough as i turn up the feed rate um with the versa pump it's amazing it's yellow it's all i need to know nice yeah and, and i think that's going to be really useful and it's going to support that's going to save you like three hundred dollars on having a you know, ph uh controller probe and solenoid valve to just really dial it in you hadn't heard about that one either no yeah no we got some funky ideas so what's next <laughs> up on your list um <clears throat> so we were talking about glass cleaners uh let's see show into so you know these paint scrapers you could buy at Home Depot? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you can just buy like a 12 pack of blades at the mm -hmm. same Home Depot. And I mean, yeah, they rust, but you just throw them away, right? Yep. Dude, you got to clean a bunch of coralline. You know, I, I, these are awesome. I mean, because it's, I remember doing it with like a razor blade, yep. but you know, this is like three inches wide, right? So you just can go and, and you got a little more leverage, just kind of like, kind of like a Kent scraper, right? Like you got more grip. I, I don't know why people don't just go to town with these on the back glass when there you need to. There is certainly a huge disconnect between products that are niche for the aquarium hobby. I mean, the, the, a scraper blade could cost 10 cents. And by the time you put it in, in, <laughs> in packaging and shipping and multiple levels of the supply chain, you're talking about 10 to $12 for two or three pieces of metal. Case in how point. Much are, yeah, how much are those? <laughs> how much are those scrapers a piece? Like twenty cents, fifty cents? Yeah, yeah. Um, and don't, I, I love my Kent scraper, but you know, th this is this just gets you don't have to apply any pressure, man. It's like it glass. Just goes. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's great. Um, it cleans coralline like it was diatoms. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And you know, granted, maybe I'm not the guy to seek advice from on that because I switched to regular glass because I found <laughs> ultra clear glass to scratch too easily. But uh, I've never really had a problem with these even on the ultra clear glass because the, um, by using a fresh blade whenever you do it, you know, uh, a sharp fresh blade is not going to scratch your glass. It's how when much, it gets How much nicked. is a pack and how many does it come with? It's so cheap that I don't even know. I don't <laughs> <laughs> You're so cheap. I don't even know. Use it once, throw it away. No, I, uh, a pack of these replacement blades, I don't know. What's it got to cost? Like five bucks? And then, you know. How, how many inside? Oh, I don't know. I've had this pack for uh, half a year, you know, and I'm still not done with it. Um, yeah, there are so many creative solutions available at your hardware store. It's not even funny. 
Yeah, it just pops in, right? You click it back, you go to town. Um, sometimes I'll I'll dip it in some RO water and then like hand dry it. Um, the blade itself, like you can you can pop it right out, and then that way it doesn't rust, right? And you can get some uses out of it. Very nice. Um, yeah, no, so that is a very good one. Uh, and while we're still talking, we're literally just talking about aquarium fundamentals, right? We're not talking about yeah. changing your aquarium life. We were talking about small shortcuts that just really speed up the process, right? If you're using an old plastic bra- blade to clean up some coralline on a six foot tank, man, you might be at it for hours. But with what you're t- proposing, I mean, 10 minutes to do a super thorough job, max? Yeah, and that's I'll tackle the coralline with that, and then I'll take the the regular film algaes I'll take with the plastic blade of the Tunzi scraper, and you know just keep on keeping on, and um, and I just find that um, having a clean background really sets a like really looks nice on a tank, but I can I can understand that it's a pain in the butt to do. So here's one of those ways where it actually is quite easy to do. Uh, so you'd takes, like to keep the, the back of your tank super clean? Yeah. I mean, I've let, I'm sure you can find pictures of my tank online just covered in coralline. Don't get me wrong. I get lazy. But whenever I do get in there and just scrape it up and clean it, I'm always glad I did. You know, because the contrast really sets the corals apart. So... Well, it's so funny. Like, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about all the things that I use all the time that I don't even think is a Mm. hot book. How many, maybe not years, but weeks of your life have you spent trying to get that perfect clean on the front of your tank? How many paper towels? A lot, right? Yeah. So this is a squeegee vac. Let me turn it on real quick so you can I'm glad. Yeah, we should... So we should probably be is, good about describing this for the podcasters because they're like, I can't see, man. Right. <laughs> so. It just so happens that so this is a basically a very small vacuum with a squeegee and it's got some little um, intake holes right there. I am, I'll tell you what, man. You can wipe down a tank until you know for for ten minutes, twenty minutes. And I can come behind you with the squeegee vac and it sucks the water off resulting in no salt residue and just a crystal clear look so especially for the aquarium maintenance guys um, this is made by Karcher and I know it's gotten a lot more popular for just general use nothing about aquariums this will save you so much time but we work so hard to have beautiful corals I'm so I'm so glad we're like a half an hour in we're still talking about scraping the glass (laughs) because it sucks to do you know it sucks to do well yeah right it's not that hard to take a dobe pad and just kind of wipe it down a little bit but you want to get that crystal clear look on the inside and outside this thing 50 60 bucks i mean it's rechargeable um it comes with a kit where you can actually spray water on wipe it all over the place and then suck it off with this it, i mean i can wipe down all the tanks in the studio probably talk about like 50 60 feet of tanks 10 minutes to perfection Super, I actually have dope. to try that because I'm still, <clears throat> I still got the uh, vinegar water mix in like a spray bottle that I do and wipe it down. Granted, I only I, I don't have as many tanks as you, but uh, that I know. But when you that's actually a, a nice when you try. have one tank, yeah, you want it to look its best, yeah. And I'm telling you, like, I can wipe down a six by two pane of glass in sixty seconds or less. 
from the time it takes to you know spray it on i'm 30 seconds honestly (laughs) you know it's it's really really fast and you know we want to see our aquarium corals we still haven't talked much about things in the actual (laughs) aquarium but i love it i love it there's so many little fun little hacks i can i just added it during this podcast and now i'm taking it right back off all right what you what's next for you um if we're gonna just finish up on cleaning um for salt salt creep man i just one of these little nalgene squirter bottles just fill it up wash bottle wash bottle okay yeah you fill it up with ro water and just like the areas where you tend to have some salt creep build up you know you squirt it it dissolves the salt right it makes salt water again and i mean some of the tough spots you got to go in there with like a toothbrush but i just kind of hose down certain areas and then also like my skimmer intake i'll just squirt ro water in there every once in a while Ah, no you're stealing my thing all right that's 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 no no that's great so these are great just so keep that up so a wash bottle comes in a free a few different versions yeah hold it up one more time oh sorry and this one's made by nalgene actually it's a nalgene is a little bit more expensive but it's it's a lot better so this wash bottle i don't even have that on my list but i have them here it's again it's all these little things that, that i know that i use but i didn't think that it's actually a hack until i see people who are fragging corals you know take a baster or a pipette and bring water over here squirt a little bit bring water over here squirt a little bit the wash bottle you can just sit there and squirt 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 it's true the yeah. nalgene is really good because that is a very fine tip when you really want to blast something away like um i don't know like flatworms or any kind of parasites or while you're fragging um and there's some more generic ones that have a little bit wider tips where you can get a little bit more w- water flow through so i use that for um, when i'm fragging corals on the saw um when i'm just kind of cleaning up some frags you know you might scrape around the plug or something um but also i don't even add water to my table saw anymore i literally will just s- uh, spray down the blade because uh, i'm not sitting there like fragging and fragging and fragging but i also don't want like a pool of of you know coral yeah. scum like just recirculating through the whole thing so i'll just use that to uh, blast in the coral so yeah the wash bottle it, it has so many applications around the aquarium hobby um and so you were saying you use it for your venturis yeah yeah just um every once in a while squirt a little ro water in there um obviously calcium buildup and stuff like that it's not going to work but you know sometimes you get like the salt creep in the hose as well and that starts to restrict the airflow um and just your sump like the the inner walls of your sump where there's just salt spray and stuff i'll just you know if i just once a week just kind of hose those down with ro water um it it slows the uh the process of that whole crusty buildup. Uh, so i definitely had that on my list i i feel like if you, if you look at threads on any Facebook group or major online forum, there is a remarkable lack of discussion about aquarium maintenance. And it's, we're like, yeah, we're almost 40 minutes in. We're literally just talking about the day-to-day here. And one of the things that I had on my list is you should be running hot, fresh water through your venturi once a month. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the more often you do it, the less it needs it. You know, but after two months, I mean, especially here in a drier climate, like I, you know, I like to stay on top of it. I like to keep my protein skimmer uh, cranking, but like, I think I've mentioned it before. I gave a talk on aquarium maintenance um, and asked people to raise their hands. And most of the crowd had never, ever cleaned their protein skimmer beyond the cup, not the pump, not the venturi, not the air intake, not the needle wheel. And I was just like, oh, 
well, this talk is going to fall on deaf ears. But yeah, some just I, I, I was recently uh, tuning some uh, some equipment at a large uh, facility uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I just went around with some hot water to free up the Venturis and immediately the protein scammers were just turned into giant clouds and started overflowing because they had been tuned uh, down because there was so little air going into it. But it's like, you're talking about doing that when you're half awake while you're making your coffee, just take a little cup of hot water and just let your protein skimmer pull it through and boom. I mean, that, that's, gonna, that's 50% of the maintenance required by a protein skimmer. Clean your Venturis. Yep. Yeah, I think maybe that's why I've never been a guy that has like 20 aquariums because I, I yeah, I get into that, you know, like I, I like the way I like to keep uh, an aquarium. I, I can be lazy about parameters. I'll, I'll fully admit that. And sometimes a little lazy about cleaning pumps, but I just, I don't know, just the appearance of everything. I don't, I don't like everything to get just, I don't know, salt creepy and gross and just bugs me. You know, the, there should be a lot more pride placed on to, especially if you have just one or two aquariums, like polish it up. Don't let anything distract from the enjoyment of your aquarium, whether it's noise or obstructions or dirty glass or a slurping protein skimmer. There's like just so many things you can do um, in, in this department. Um, God, are we, are we done cleaning our tanks yet? <laughs> Yeah. Oh no, he's got something else. <laughs> no, no, I think. Oh boy, I think I'm good. Um, some some of this stuff's gonna make people be like, "Man, that guy is really OCD." <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this should be a hobby about attention to details. That's the entire premise of the aquarium controller fad. <laughs> <laughs> right it's it's attention to detail it's being critical about certain things and it's like if you're not critical about the appearance of your aquarium which it's all about looking at it right then i don't know i think you're really missing a lot yeah you know um i uh <clears throat> like like one of my guilty pleasures is like watching youtube videos about people that are sailing around the world and oh. um um total like retirement dream right to do that but um let's go let's do it i know right <laughs> just just sell the house and buy a, a boat in of equivalent value and just go sail around the world do and it, your house. Like 15 to 20 years let's sail around the world and try to go see every angel fish in the wild that'd be a cool goal except for the super deep water ones we'll just throw down rov and check it off <laughs> no but so the, the the point of that was just um there's like to 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 basically live on a sailboat in this harsh environment of like saltwater ocean, right? The amount of maintenance, like preventative maintenance, you've got to do so that you don't end up in a in a bad situation in the middle of the Atlantic on a, on a like oceanic crossing and stuff. Like you know, like it's even like when it's like some of these guys when it starts raining, they get their brushes and brooms out, right? Because they're going to use mm. that fresh water just to scrub the whole boat down. Um, and I feel I feel very strongly about that for aquariums. When I was in college, I left on a trip for two weeks and I had simultaneous tank crashes at university and at my house. And I suffered you know, so significant losses. And ever since then, I'm just like, what can I do to never have this happen again? So I cleaned the bejesus out of my pumps. I mean, I, uh, I take them apart all the time. I mean, there is no part of any piece of equipment here that doesn't get visual inspection at least once a year. I'm yeah. talking about the dark, 
darkest, deepest recesses of every skimmer, every pump, every tubing. Like, I, d I just don't let it go. And it might sound like a lot of work. And it's not because for me, it's kind of cathartic. Just kind of go, go through it and make sure everything's you know running like it should. And you know what I end up with? I end up with equipment that runs at peak performance, super quiet, super reliable. And when I leave town, I don't even think about anything. I don't never sweat it. I don't I just literally don't because I've recently handled that equipment. And I know what condition it's in. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's a hobby. But if you think about it, you're building a life support system, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's like these. For, for these fish living in your house, it's like a living in a habidome on Mars or whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. a like whatever you call those things. Um, so yeah, it's our, I feel like a little bit of a responsibility to, to not half-ass it. Um, and you know, it's funny, I do, for me, it's, it's very meditative to do it and I listen to podcasts while I do it. So, you know, hey, listen to Reef Therapy and, and tackle some salt creep and check your pumps, you know, that's a good Absolutely. way to kill an hour. Um, so. Absolutely. But yeah, we'll leave it at that, I guess. Um, I would like to, you know what? Let me talk about one super little one. Um, I use uh, little PVC clips for everything. Anytime, you know. PVC clips. So basically, you just you just cut, you know, a little section of pipe, then cut, you know, uh, uh, cut through it. Oh, so you basically so it's have like a, a C, C shape. Yeah. And I use that to clamp down everything. Damn, I didn't even think about that. Never? Are you no. serious, dude? I have so many in every size for everything just to keep cords in place, to keep anemone baskets in place. You know, I have algae magnets, but I don't always want to use an algae magnet, and the PVC clip works for everything. Um, dosing, dosing tubing, or yeah dosage tubing um just to keep it everything routed kind of where i want but anytime i need a, a clip i've already you know it's just something i need to clamp onto the size of a tank and um my my shallow uh, coral tables i'll call them um they have pretty you know pretty thick uh, walls and man holding down those anemone baskets in high flow or like a little uh, floating breeder box that i don't want floating around man i use little pvc clips for everything so are you using like schedule 20 like something that has a little more flex to it and then making the openings like say smaller than the glass wall you're i'll use schedule 40 okay um and it really depends right because i can use three quarter inch half inch one inch or larger and um depending on how tight i want it i might you know i'll cut i'll do one initial cut so i can open it up and and, and when it comes back together it's got a nice clamping force but if i don't want that much clamping force then i'll cut a little wedge a you know out of it so it has a little bit more give and what are you using to cut that with no, nah, just PVC cutters. Huh. All right. Yeah, just gonna, you know, cut a slice of PVC with the PVC cutters and then cut across it with the PVC cutters to make a C and then just use that to, uh, you know, batten down the hatches. Dang. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, super, super duper easy. Yeah, some of them, these we don't have to talk about at length. We'll just throw them out there. Um, you know what my... Yeah, I'm gonna throw another easy one out there. I think specimen cups are the best thing ever. Yeah, and a specimen <laughs> cup is what every store should be using to catch their fish. I do. I have a fish net that I use to corral fish. I do not catch any fish with a fish net. The, so a specimen cup is just you know what stores use to hang on the side of the tank. It's got a little bit bracket and it's just kind of kind of clear. It's great for visual inspection. It's great for catching fish, dude. I don't catch fish one at a time. I catch all of them in one go. Just just corral them into the specimen cup. Boom. They never have to come out of water. They never get like abraded by the nylon mesh uh, fish net. But then I also use them for everything, 
right? Every one of your sumps, what is it, like two, three, five partitions? It's got overflowing water. I don't even use media reactors. I just put a specimen cup right there and drill out the bottom a little bit, you know, maybe put some like a uh, coarse foam mesh on the bottom and boom, got water flowing through it. It's built a media reactor with no pump. Nice. I never thought about using it as a media reactor. I have, I have some specimen cups and yeah, I it's, that's like sort of like this, this squirty bottle thing, right? Like once you own it, you you end up using it a million times for a million different mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Um, you have water flowing through your sump. You have it overflowing into section after section after section. And I love putting um, you know, uh, these specimen cups pre-drilled at the bottom with like a coarse foam mesh at the bottom. So I can just put a bag of any kind of media I want, uh, you know, uh, activated carbon, GFO, aluminum oxide. And you know what I do when I need to replace it? I reach in and pull it out. There is no tubing. There is no lid. There is no no process. I just reach in, pull it out. And you, you know what this has really enabled me to do is when I'm using um, chemical medias, I will rinse them between before I change it, right? So if I'm using activated carbon or GFO or aluminum oxide, um, I'll pull it out because it's going to naturally get dirty. No matter how many pre-filters you have before that, it's naturally going to get dirty. Your certain sides aren't going to be exposed. I'll take it over to uh, the sink, spray it down really good and plop it back in. Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> you know, for meteor reactors too, like the whole carbon dust stuff, I only do a slight washing because, um, I guess in my experience, I mean, yeah, people tangs, H, uh, lateral line disease and all that, but as long as you're running a skimmer, you know, uh, mm-hmm. if you miss a little bit of it, like it'll get skimmed out and you, and you'll notice like when you change your carbon, your skimmer cups like black. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so in to, right. to your point, here's another hack. I soak my medias. Oh, I don't just rinse them. That was actually a tip from Joe Caparata. I was asking him like, Hey man, how do you, you know, the Triton method calls for aluminum oxide because it pulls out a different you know, suite of, uh, elements. And he was like, Oh yeah, just soak your aluminum oxide. Cause you can rinse it all you want, but when you soak it. And then, so I started doing that with carbon and with GFO. So I'll give them a good rinse and then I'll give them a good soak in, in purified water for a day or two. But I always have just all my medias like pre soaked and ready to use. Um, so my protein skimmer cup, is never black <laughs> but yeah if you're worried about your carbon activated carbon leaching any kind of phosphates or heavy metals or your gfo putting iron powder in your tank or your aluminum oxide you know leaching aluminum in your tank give it a good rinse give it a good soak why soak it in your tank when you can soak it outside your tank beforehand yeah i just look at it like that's what my skimmer's for like, <laughs> get to work dude Dude, there's so there's sometimes that i don't rinse my gfo as as hard as oh I, I don't i don't mess with gfo anymore so well there's sometimes i'm just like you know what i kind of want that powder going through and just doing its absorption thing and then let the the protein skimmer or yeah. some meteor reactor pulling it out because i want sometimes i do want some of that immediate um, activation and obviously powder is going to have a much higher surface area than just the, the larger granules all right so i got one that's um more about you know when you're not around um so i label everything right uh the compartments in the sump like this is the refugium and i know you hate that word but i'm just saying okay this is the skimmer right this is the the water that pumps the water back to the tank um 
I've been in so many situations. Uh, not no, sorry, that's not true. Not many. I've been in situations. You've been in critical moments. Yes, where my wife's on the phone, and this was also a bit pre FaceTime, where you could actually have a camera, right? Right. Um, and you're trying to communicate to that person what to do. And yes, controllers are great because you can remotely turn things on and off. But if you're both able to know, like if you and her or him, whoever is helping you, are, are talking about the same thing, right? Uh, when you say skimmer, they immediately know what the skimmer is. It's worth its weight in gold just to, just to spend an hour. And, and again, this is where people probably think I'm OCD and label that shit. Um, even uh, with the, er, the Herbie method, my emergency drain pipe is a different color PVC nice. than the regular one so that, hey, the tank's making a funny gurgling noise, right? I can say, okay, look in the overflow box because I have a corner overflow. You can actually look Ooh. in the overflow box because I don't like center overflows. Just saying that. Anyway, but <laughs> I can say, okay, is the water you know up to the level of this pipe or that pipe? And hey, we're speaking the same language, right? So um, I just, man, label everything. I mean, even you know, label your plugs, right? Uh, it's great to have a controller, but what if I'm backpacking? And I don't have access to my fusion, right? And she just needs to freaking unplug something. Um, and even, I mean, if you want to go nuts, like I have an oh shit button, right, that she can press. But mm. um, ideally, just, yeah, I don't know. Label makers are great. Um, yes. It's funny you, should, you use, you know, labels. I actually color code. Yeah. And a color code with um, kind of like a canvas fluorescent tape. Um, and I just usually know, like I, like I have clear jars that I put all my prepared foods in and I know which color is which, um, and I color code certain things. Um, but yeah, it's like you hope that you never need it, but when things are labeled, um, it really comes in handy. Especially when it's, you know, I mean, your significant other probably He's knows probably what a protein skimmer. Are. Well, no, I was going to say like, you know, your, your, your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriends heard you talk about your reef tank so much that they're mm -hmm. like, they could point out a protein skimmer, right? Um, but when you're both going on vacation and it's that random neighbor dude that knows nothing about aquariums, uh, yeah, you know, it's just, yeah, it, it just label every freaking pipe, everything, you know, it sticks, these things stick to everything. Um, the other one that I, I guess makes me kind of weird is uh, dry erase pens, uh, especially mm -hmm. the ones with a little eraser built in. Um, your sump is a great whiteboard. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I do use my app a lot more uh, and track stuff in my phone, but just, you know, if you want to know when the last time you changed your carbon is or anything, just... Daggummit. That brings me to another one. So I don't use a dry erase pen. I use... um. What is it called? Like a bistro marker? Yeah. And I write straight on the tank. Yeah. You know, uh, like, I mean, you know, fish stores do it, right? Y these are dry erase ones. So those are a little bit more like paint pens. So okay. I use a paint, paint pen that you have to take off with a razor blade. But I use the dry, the, uh, the bistro pen um, because they're fluorescent colors. Right. Oh, so I got yeah. yellow, a green, an orange. I pretty much just stick with yellow, green. But, you know, when I'm actively watching a parameter on a particular aquarium, I will literally write it in the top right corner. 
I use or, it on my uh, quarantine tank, right? When I'm medicating, like when did I yeah. add my uh, chloroquine phosphate? You know, when same. Did I add? I'm right there with you. I will write down, like you know, I added prazi on this day this much and here's my copper level on this day and over the next few days while i'm doing the quarantine i'll use the the bistro marker yep. the bistro pen um but i do like the fluorescent one because i could you could really freaking see it with the blue leds but yeah that's a great point like sometimes um i'll just walk around with the pen and write notes right in the middle of the tank of things that need to be done so that way it annoys me to the point where i'll do it so i can wipe it off the tank <laughs> Yeah, because you can't scrape it away until it's uh, it's been done. That's good. Well, that's like, that's yeah. a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, and you know, sometimes when there's something that really needs to be done, uh, in fluorescent uh, bistro pen, I'll write right in the front of the tank. Um, but you know, just like kind of like in a discreet corner of the tank. Yeah. You know, because like I could have I could have a journal, you know, but then you have to flip through and figure out where you're at with stuff. But you know, I'll put my last salinity reading on this particular corner of each tank, and I'll just kind of discreetly around the corner write, you know, how much water I change on what date so it's also really important to put the date of you know of, of these uh measurements but yeah that's a great point great point for uh, we're still on maintenance sorry <laughs> yes. no no you're good you're good you're fine um can i uh, i want to talk about one of my biggest hacks which should not be a hack but i think today it is and that's gravity fed auto top offs mm. I, I just don't understand why everyone would rather have a machine that they shell out 80 to to $100 for to top off the water in your aquarium instead of just letting gravity do the work. It, very similar to the protein skimmer snorkel that you can route everywhere you want um, very discreetly using semi-rigid tubing from like RO units. Um, I do the opposite, you know, with uh, a large reservoir, slightly elevated, and it can be like so far. I mean, it could be as far as you want from your aquarium as long as just, you know, one foot above, you know, gravity will do the rest. It's like Maybe. the city water tower analogy yes. right like it's yes. like every house all is your a water pressure yeah is gravity yeah i mean most places right but it's like there's four or five points of failure in a typical ato device and the only place i feel like a, an ato is really warranted is in places where you absolutely cannot have a reservoir anywhere near the aquarium or you can't route any piping or you have a nanotank but even then on the nanotanks just cover it reduce that evaporation yeah, to we begin talked with. about that yeah just you know don't be afraid of a glass lid don't be afraid of a glass lid your fish will thank you you know because i mean if you have an open tank and it's a small especially a smaller aquarium it's a matter of time it's not if it's when mm -hmm. and um you know you might be worried about uh um, CO2 and gas exchange, but your skimmer is doing a hundred times more gas exchange than just the surface of your aquarium. Or they're, they're worried the about light transmission or uh, that salt creep will impact light transmission, which again, just take the lid over to your sink and wash it every once in a while. That's, I think, less well, work. Also, we're getting to a point where like, I actually kind of rely on my mesh you know, tops to help with some of the diffusion yeah. of the light. <laughs> Like now I'm actually counting on it, right? There used to be such a deal where Oceanic had the, uh, the low iron glass that helped more light transmit to like, we don't have a shortage of light anymore. That's just not a problem. No, and now you have 
fixtures that have dedicated diffusers in them. Just like, yeah, just use your glass top as a diffuser. Let the salt creep and dust build up on top. It's a natural diffuser. You're good. Yeah, and, and unless all your lights are at 100%, you know, if they're at 100% and that's still not enough, uh, you and you've got a glass lights. lid. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you, just, you need new lights or more lights. <laughs> yeah, it's not, don't blame that, that lid that's helping you with everything else. I, yeah, no, I really feel very strongly about gravity-fed um, float v- valves uh, for makeup water because, for me, it's literally thoughtless. I have a, a shut-off valve for my water supply that supplies the top-off reservoir. I never have to top off anything. I don't have to top off the top-off. You know, and on my nano tank that does have a glass lid, I keep a little corner open so I can peek through it and it evaporates very slowly. So manually about every four to six weeks, depending on the season, just add a half a gallon and three quarters of a gallon to the you know back filtration chamber. And it's just so much easier. And that's like five or, well, maybe two or three wires, a pump and some tubing that I just don't ever have to deal with. And, you know, you know, it's so funny, man. Like people come at me like with the gravity fed ATOs, like, oh, what if it sticks? And I'm like, what if your power supply sticks? What if your pump doesn't work? What if your tubing pops? Or what if your controller doesn't work? What if yeah. your switch doesn't activate? What are you talking about? I feel, you know, I feel like it, you can engineer some redundancies with a pump. Like you can have a backup float switch to turn it off. Um, but uh, if level. the first one sticks, yeah. Um, but that said, that goes back to maintenance, right? If you properly maintain a float valve, it's, it's going to perform just fine. And, you know, don't, don't feed calc wasser through it and all that crazy stuff. No, 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 no. That's, that's a yeah. separate discussion. Yep. We'll probably be Keep put together clean. another yeah. session on all the things not to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are some small, very crummy, low, you know, flotation uh, float valves that are being included on some of these sumps so I'm from major manufacturers. I don't use those, man. Let's just take it out and put in like a real yeah. float valve that's going to give you a good pressure. And you know what the maintenance is on that thing, bro? Once a year, just flip it back and forth with your hand and any kind of obstruction. You know, the worst problem I've ever had with the float valve is it didn't shut off all the way. And it had a very slow trickle through. I've never had one stick. Yeah. Never had one stick. I'm so I, I have to fight gravity for my auto top off because my uh, RO reservoir is in the basement. So that's my, that's my only caveat for me. But that gets into a whole other territory because there's, uh, you know, most auto top off that are sold don't handle, you know, 25 feet of. No. Pressure. No, they do not. So, yeah, <laughs> now you're looking at, like, you know, other solutions that, that, that can handle that type of uh, uh, gravity um, and not wear out while you're uh, on vacation. So, yeah, that's a good one. I, I, you, you guys who've never used a gravity-fed uh, float valve, there's a lot of gains and a lot of um, stability that comes from using a natural force to do the work. Um. You know, one other one I really want to throw out there, like I see a couple of the content creators have uh, picked up on this idea that I've been trying to put in people's faces is one of the things that takes you the most time when you're testing water is getting an accurate water sample in the vial. And for $50 or less, you can get a adjustable pipetter. 
and you can squirt in two mils, five mils, 10 mLs, and every single time that meniscus is gonna be right in line with the line indicating where that 10 ml sample is. And like, that's one of those things that takes the longest time. And then you have to wipe down the cuvette because you dipped it in the water. Um, and that takes a little bit more time, but man, an adjustable pipetter. Um, I think one of the major online retailers finally picked up on the idea. Like how much do I have to beat people over the head with this idea? This pipetter, this is how samples are made for uh, pharmaceuticals, for biotechnology. There's micropepeter. Uh, the, uh, the Hanna calcium test kit was bunk until it came with a 0.1 ml, a very small sampler uh, pipetter. You know, and they sell that separately. But man, that is one of those things that will just save you so much time. And not to mention, um, it's hyper accurate. Right? If you're doing it manually to try to fill it with the, to the line, you're, you're always going to be a little over and a little bit under, and that's going to introduce some variability into your water testing uh, regime. But having a pipetter, for all the silly things that we buy for our aquariums, like a freaking squeegee, uh, a, a vacuum squeegee, um, it's just one of those things like... It, for me, it completely just negates the the need for having any kind of automatic testing machine. Like that's how strongly I feel about it. I can test all my water samples because I can load them up so fast using a pipetter that any kind of testing machine is not really saving me that much time. And they're one-handed, right? Oh yeah, yeah. That's the other thing because I used to have the syringes, and then you've got your 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 test tube basically, and you're at the tank, and you're you know. It's like okay, let me put that down, and you know you're you're using that plunger, whereas uh, the the one-handed uh, micro pipette or pipetters are, are just easier to manage. Um, yeah. Again, it's a small thing; it's not a big deal, but it's those little things that just make your life easier. Mm-hmm. And speaking of little things, I, I just I really feel like there's a lot of ground to be covered by having custom-shaped nozzles on the outflow of our aquariums. We have been collectively criminally negligent in how little the reef aquarium community as a whole has explored all of the advantages and opportunities of having outlet nozzles beyond just round tubing and duckbill or flare nozzle. I'm guilty of that. I haven't done a whole lot in that department. <clears throat> well, it's like I haven't even messed with the ductors. Like I keep, I kept telling for myself like I've tried. Fifteen years, we only had the normal one and then a ductor, and then the commercially available one was a flow accelerator, which is like a really crummy version of, of an adductor. And um, you know, one thing that's been really popular uh, has been the VCA uh, random flow generator. Yeah. I feel like that's really fun. Uh, accessory that's not going to transform your aquarium, you know, for tanks two to three feet. But I am not down with folks putting that on tanks four feet or larger because this is exactly what we were trying to get away with when, you know, gyre flow techniques were introduced to get faster flow speeds in your aquarium. But there's just a whole world to explore between having an open nozzle and having one of these little toys on the outside and for me like the clover nozzle uh, it's something you can make super fast it doesn't even matter if you do it right you know just a little bit of compression a little bit of pressure at the end is going to dramatically affect how much throw you get from your outlets 
you need to make one mark yeah i i i saw your video on it um again i should probably give that a shot i got a bunch of spare yeah, pgc laying around yeah just grab a you know a, a tea candle and then you know experiment with just bending it into a you know a couple lobes and i think you will be really uh surprised huh? really supplies it will reduce the flow rate going through your aquarium so maybe that's one of the part of the apprehension that uh has come with the territory um regarding you know adding some of these uh, frivolities to the outlets but i just think there's a whole world to explore there to shape the water flow coming from your return pump how you um, doing you, you still have a few left on your list because i got a bunch more yeah, I mean this one's um <clears throat> well so I've got I've got one around uh one that's just pretty simple and then one that really uh um I discovered and I haven't installed it yet but when all those folks in Texas lost power um I started going down into like emergency situations and you know a generator God, that's that's such an important one that kind of lines up with what you were saying with labeling your stuff when you're out of town but well so on. um i'll save that one for last i guess but uh or we can get into it um so so the the the, the heartbreaking thing about reading about the folks in texas was uh, when they lost power for several days right i i'm guilty that i was always fixated on oxygenation and um seeing if i could get my heater running right so and the thing that uh the whole texas incident made me realize is that your tank heater is not going to manage your tank even if you have a powerful enough generator to run your heater i'm not talking about folks that have whole house generators right i'm talking about folks that are plugging their aquarium into a generator um if your house internal temperature is 30 degrees yeah your heater is not going to keep up and it's not going to work your fish it's are going to happen right uh, yeah. you, you can have an air bubbler going you can have power heads going but it's and that was i was seeing all these posts online of that happening and i was like all right wait wait of people's heaters just failing no not because, keeping up right uh, well i mean yeah. you, you got and so yeah one argument is like go if your generator can handle it have a more powerful heater but i don't care like keeping your tank at 78 degrees when you're living in 30 degree air inside your house that's an issue right um but um so one thing that i i stumbled upon because i was not going to I, for a place like austin or even a place like atlanta um, we do get ice storms but i knock on wood have never lost power for very long and so um, yeah, I knocked on wood too. But so <laughs> for me to spend a fortune on a whole house generator, I mean, people can argue that what what's worth it or not worth it. But for me, it wasn't worth it, right? To spend 10 grand on a whole house generator that runs on natural gas or even get like an even larger capacity fuel generator and then have a transfer switch installed because my panel is in a finished basement and to install like a transfer switch with a sub panel and everything... It just wasn't in the cards, but um, so if you've got a, a natural gas type, uh, a gas furnace, right? The the gas, right, is what's providing the energy, the heat, right? Not electricity. Mm -hmm. So your average gas furnace uses like five, six hundred watts of electricity, similar mm -hmm. to your heater, maybe for your tank, right? And what all it's doing, right, is blowing air, right? And it's 
So that gas gets ignited and a blower redistributes that warm air. So I found like a company that makes a essentially a transfer switch just for your furnace and you just plug an extension cord into it and you flip a switch, right? And it cuts it off from your panel so you're not gonna fry the emergency crew down the road. And this is super easy to install. I mean, or well, if you if you don't feel comfortable with electricity, get an electrician to install it. But this is like this with a camping generator would be able to turn on your furnace. And now your house temperature is at a point where, you know, hell, just if your tank's at 75 degrees because your house is at 75 or 72 degrees, that's better than trying to cook your tank with a heater while, uh, while it's not keeping up with the air temperature. So I was just surprised that not a lot, I mean, I know everybody doesn't have gas furnaces. Some people have electrical furnaces, but I was surprised that nobody talks about this um, because, you know, you technically, it's not up to code. And that's the other thing, check if this is up to code in your state, but technically you can run your furnace off an extension cord if it's a gas furnace during a major critical power outage. And the other upside is not only are your fish comfy, but you're comfy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. I don't know if it's a hack, but man, I just felt so bad reading about these people that everybody's like, oh, you know, you got to have a heater plugged in your generator. And these guys were like, pissed off because they're like look man i have a generator but my house is 30 degrees what do you want me to do you know you know what they should do what they should pick up a book from 1944 where they'll tell you about setting a kerosene lamp underneath your aquarium to keep it warm no there was a guy that did that and i think he got the (laughs) flame too close to the glass and the glass broke yeah yeah no there was a technique you can't have it too close but like you know even a a little bit of tea candles and these these old old like you know super crazy old texts this is from 1953 not 1944 1953 this is the aquarium volume 22 there are some very funny like or fun and interesting speaking of like 1920s hacks that's got to be interesting (laughs) yeah you know oh my god there's some in there about like putting an incandescent bulb half in the tank to warm the aquarium obviously that's that's electricity but um but yeah in in the event of a a catastrophic power failure dude i won't be running around here with some tea candles underneath my aquarium to keep them from going super cold um but that might really depend on how much substrate you have in your aquarium which leads me to my biggest reefing hack what do you think it is mark damn so you left a big one for last because I got like crappy ones last, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get to the all of them. Yeah, mine, me but, neither. You know, I, like, I, I like know we're tempo. getting already up there in time, but um, uh, biggest hack. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think you're going to say bare bottom. Bare bottom. <laughs> Which I disagree with. <laughs> bare bottom. I could, I could write a book on the reasons why bare bottom is better for your aquarium easier for your aquarium you know not least of which you have more flow less places for detritus to build up um you know if you have a one inch sand bed in a four foot tank that's like the equivalent of having a 10 pound fish breathing all the time in your aquarium you're never going to get your ph up if you have a 10 pound fish in your 120 gallon tank breathing all the time um but ick you know kind of going back to what we were talking about you can you almost can't have a critical life-threatening ick 
episode if there's no sand or detritus for the explorers to um, complete their life cycle. They're always going to find a little spot in the rock or whatever, or little corners here and there, but they're not going to build up to the levels that it's going to kill your fish. Um, and it's much easier to add nutrients to your aquarium than it is to take them out. You know, and I know there's a lot to be said for like nutrient processing, but I feel like the biggest hack, no coral farmer has sand in their aquariums, in those systems. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just let that sink in for a second. No coral farmer has sand in their coral systems. They might have, a, you know, a handful of live rock here and there and in the sump or whatever, but they're not going to have a sand bed in places where they're, you know, actively, aggressively propagating, growing corals. That's just, that's just not a thing. Um, and, you know, like, there's some corals that can rest on the sand, but it just in my long-term experience, like, it's just a matter of time before um, it gets a little covered up with sand or, like, you're not going to have fireworms coming up through your bare bottom to eat your trichophilia. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I really feel like bare bottom is the easiest hack. Um, you know, a kind of interim to theirs to having something coarser or like a really thin gravel bed um, to mitigate some of the downsize of having a, a, a sand bed but I, I feel like that is I don't I feel like I couldn't have 13 plus reef tanks if I had sand in every one of them well I mean going back to power outages proof is in the pudding man like uh, a reef tank with like a, a deep substrate is is a nightmare during a power it's outage suck the oxygen out yeah compared to a bare bottom tank is much easier to keep oxygenated right um yeah, for me, that's a aesthetic choice. Um, that's I, different. I would, I would never disagree. I, I think bare bottom tanks, if set up properly, right? Don't don't start with a bunch of dead rock bare bottom and expect um, expect your volcanic island to be magically seeded with life. Um, but um, yeah, for but but I also you know for me it's an aesthetic choice. But I also know what comes with the territory, so I, I would agree with you. I think. I think a bare bottom tank has has um, has some serious advantages if you what, can. Can you name a drawback of, beyond of aesthetics? <clears throat> sure. Hmm. I mean, we've talked about wrasses, but that they're pretty adapt. They're more adaptable than people give them credit for. So, uh, dude, I'm I'm right there with you. A yeah. tank with sand looks cool. It's what we grew up on. It, it you know it brightens up the entire aquarium it gives it like a more dynamic platform for your rock and, and your corals to rest upon it's a much better presentation it reflects light upwards you know can help to be like a bottom lay diffuser but to when it comes to like the core fundamentals of reef keeping i feel like the bare bottom like that's how everyone should start their reef tank start their reef tank if you want sand add it later yeah also that's another thing when people you know they're so proud of their newly set up tank and you've got sand and rock i'm like you don't really have anything <laughs> you don't really have anything no, going yeah you know if you want sand that's another thing like it, you don't it doesn't have to be an all or nothing hack start your tank bare bottom 
add sand later. You know, well, get and it well rinsed and introduce it underneath the tank. Don't make it rain over all your entire reef. And um, I, I would say that's another hack. That's a sub hack we're introducing to this hack. Not just bare bottom, but at least start your tank off bare. And then if you have to have sand, add it later. Well, and can we also, uh, so maybe this one belonged in our misconception uh, episode, but can we stop um, villainizing shallow sand beds and crushed coral? You know, I mean, like, there's been this whole push of, like, either go bare bottom or have a deep sand bed. And and people have walked, walked that back now, but um, there's still this, uh, oh, crushed coral is this nutrient sink. And in my humble opinion, there's there's greatness to be had when you go with a larger grain and you keep it super thin, super thin. So it is just a decorative accent. I would. You're not expecting it to do anything for you. You know. I would consider a very thin sand bed equivalent to bare bottom. Okay. Functionally speaking, but would you agree still- that? There's like this, just again, that rumor mill, this misconception. I don't know, man. I've been, I've retired from online reef aquarium discussions. I have so many more discussions face to face on the phone or direct DMs or, you know, those kind of conversations, the ones we're having right now than I have on social because it's just, it's just noise, so much noise. I would consider a thin sand bed. Uh, virtually identical to having bare bottom, save for the ick aspect. Yeah. Right, yeah, a very thin layer of sand is still gonna, you know, propagate a little bit more ick than a bare bottom. But functionally, yes, having a thin layer that where nutrients can't get lost, that's not gonna be super affected by you know aggressive flow rates. I would consider it almost uh, equivalent. Okay, yeah, because I, I just feel crushed coral has been demonized like this, like it's this great evil and you got to, first it was sugar size sand. Now it's the special grade. That's just right. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, that's no. Yeah. Until your power head, you know, falls off its magnet and it goes everywhere. But, um, yeah. So, all right. So, um, I have just, you know, I have a long list, but I just, I, there's two that I really want to bring up. Uh, but do you have any more? Are you still on your list? I'm curious because we didn't we didn't discuss this at all. So I want to hear what you what your little hacks are. So another thing that I get a lot of use out of beyond its original intended purpose is a brine shrimp net. Oh, oh yeah. Um, and you know one of the best things you can do with this uh, again I, you're if about you're to tell us. if you're a quarantiner like me, uh, uh, dry medicine, powderized medicine. Mm. You know, like usually you're you're mixing it in something and then pouring it in. I just put this in the water in a high flow area, right? And I, you know, where you keep the Make opening sure above the water. Completely. Yeah, you put the powder in there, and I mean, some of the finer particulates get through, but it gives it the opportunity to dissolve, you know, in a contained area. Um, and uh, yeah, I just that's what I use this for more than actual brine shrimp. Um, Brine shrimp? What's that, dude? I haven't seen lime brine shrimp in forever. Now that we're talking about it, I'm going to go to every fish store I go to. I'm like, you have lime brine shrimp? <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't fed that in years. The other one I like, and I'll just leave it at that, is the, um, I don't even know what it's called. I, I, I wish I could show you, but I'm actually using it right now. The um, the little tray, the little bowl that you breed brine shrimp in. That oh, like yes, a maid. yes, 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 yes. I know exactly what Once you've like about. hatched brine shrimp, one of those, you'll never do anything else. Or you'll never use anything else to hatch brine shrimp. 
Um, I think it's the Dupla Brine Shrimp Hatchery. I think it's got a special name. But yeah, no, that thing is amazing. Like, I hear people are spending so much money on life copepods yeah. and life phytoplankton. And it's like, yo, did everybody just collectively forget about brine shrimp? What the heck? It's been used for everything. You know, it's one of the critical feeds um, in between um, some of the things. Um, hobby, the brine shrimp hatchery by hobby. It's a little bit of a maze with no moving parts. And you just put a lid on it and just naturally all of the Artemia noplii will just gravitate towards the, the light in the center. That thing is Yeah, dope. it's like, uh, so the egg cysts, are they cysts or egg, whatever, the shells, they float. So you mm-hmm. you put them on the outside ring and then uh, the, the ones that are hatching, it's completely sealed up top, right? It's got a lid and then it has a small opening in the center and brine shrimp nauplii are attracted to the light. So they have to swim up and through, kind of like your sump, right? Like the bubble trap. They have to go up and over and up and over to get to the light, but the floating eggs are going to just keep floating in the outer ring. And then once they get to the center, there's this little mesh dipping cup with a little handle on it, which has a mesh bottom. And, uh, you know, so they're all swirling around in there because they're attracted to that one light opening. And then you just pick that up. You don't even need a light for it. Like yeah. just ambient room light. Daylight, be, yeah. Or, yeah, room light. And then you just pick up that little cup and the water drains out. But the mesh, you know, they can't get through it. And then you just go to your tank and just swirl it around and you put it back in. And then every once in a while, you just put new salt water in and re-add eggs. Can I be completely honest, Mark? What? You had me at Brian Tramp. I feel like baby brine shrimp is the heck. Yeah, I agree. It, that is the heck. Like, do you know how much a small can of baby brine shrimp eggs will last you? I've you got know how much that will cost? ones in my fridge that are like two years old and they still hatch. You know, like a yeah. container. Yeah, like why are we talking about copepods when we have like nutrient-rich baby brine shrimp? You know, now that we're talking about it, I think I'm going to install a giant baby brine shrimp Dude, hatchery Dude, for here. the coral feeding <laughs> folks, I'm not, I don't really feed my corals, I but know. it's like, it's just instant plankton for your tank, right? Zooplankton. I love how you brought this up as the, you know, the hobby brine shrimp hatchery, but the major hack here is baby brine shrimp. Well, but... I get that they were sort of a pain in the butt sometimes. I mean, they weren't, you know, but the upside-down two-liter bottle, that was kind of a, a pain in the butt. And then you had to decapsulate the eggs because you Our don't want to feed the eggs. grandpappies figured this out. Right. Pick up some old books. There are some crazy stuff in here that you ain't never heard of. And I think the bigger hack here is, you know, freshly hatched baby brine shrimp. And That's this thing hack. separates what you want from those annoying eggshells and you know it's it's beautiful. I so I I often end up with um, lots of little nano sized fish that I'm trying to get through quarantine. And um, like right now, uh, I so I've been on the hunt for are they called green banded gobies uh, from like like l- red Caribbean? Faced? Yeah, yes, they got the little red. Yes, yes, those things are awesome, man. What they a, are so freaking. awesome. When we were talking about underrated fish, I forget. I think I forgot to bring those up. But that's like one of my all. We're always going to forget a few things. Yeah, but a- anyway, the, the, they came in and they're like, you know, a quarter of an inch. Oh, Captain Bray fish. Yeah, so are, are shamefully small sometimes. But you know, I was like, all right, I guess I'll hatch some brine shrimp for these little dudes, and it wasn't a big deal. So, 
Again, you were talking about the specific hatchery. Yeah. I think the bigger hack here is Baby Brian Shrimp. You know what? I'm going to go on a crusade for the rest of the year <laughs> about Baby Brian Shrimp because copepods are retarded expensive. Oh, I'm sorry. We're not supposed to say that anymore. They are uh, challengingly difficult, <laughs> expensive. But Baby Brian Shrimp has been around for years. I mean, you can get a, a can that will last you a decade for like $20. Um, and if you learn some of these particular um, se- egg separation techniques, like you, you will never think well, that, yeah, about that. I, I get why maybe they fell out of favor when you had to have an air stone and the two liter bottle upside down. It's not down. that hard. Yeah, but, but this thing is like, you can just set it up in your kitchen it's, and your wife won't even notice simple. it's there. It's just like, it might even look like a piece of uh, modern interpretive art. <laughs> yeah. Is that a piece of art? No, that's my brine shrimp hatchery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, 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 um. All right, well, you know, I, got, I, I, I have a longer list, but a couple of things I really wanted to, to point out is, again, I, I love how every one of these hacks, none of them are like crazy, fundamental, transformative. They are all day-to-day just simplifications and improvements. And one of the things I've felt super strongly about for... 15 years is angling your lights Mm. angling your lights backwards we've mentioned this you know some of the things we feel strongly about we'll mention again and again and again but angling your lights backwards unless you have a flat panel light of some brand um, that you can't angle back when you have the light slightly forward and angled back you're lighting up more of the coral that we work so hard to grow and keep healthy you have no idea what like five degrees, 10 degrees will do to show off more of the reface that we are striving so hard to make so beautiful. I can't argue with that, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've, you've worked with angled lights and yep. man, I, I can't believe it's taken so long for the Reef Aquarium Hobby to have like a decent selection of supplemental strip lights that we can do like you did with the old uh, Build My LED strip. Yeah. You know, have it towards the front, angled backwards, and all of a sudden you're filling in the light, reducing some of the shadows, and just lighting up the front face of corals that we're, we're watching. And fish look better. And fish, fish too. Like, that's the yeah. other thing. Yeah, that's a great point. That's why we have, you know, two hosts on this show. <laughs> that's, we learned lighting. that in the freshwater days, right? When you were keeping, like, iridescent fish, like Congo tetras and stuff. Like, yeah. if you could angle that light coming at them, man. <laughs> Go to your local library. I'm telling you, there are some books like this that will have nothing to do with salt water, but might spark your creative juices on cool and interesting things you can apply to your aquarium. So I think it's really fitting that we, you know, we kind of started off uh, talking about some things that uh, don't really work for, or just not really f- cost effective and time effective for raising your pH. But I think it'd be a really good to end with one. And that is managing the effluent from your calcium reactor. So, you know, it's calm. It's, well, you know what? Sometimes there's so many people in the hobby now. They don't all know everything or they don't all know the basics even. Um, it's, it's common to just route the effluent to your protein skimmer. Surprisingly, not everyone knows that. 
The one downside with that is you are introducing mineral-rich water right where it, the pH is being boosted and encouraging the lime buildup from that mineral-rich water right at the, 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 the skimmer pump, right? So you're increasing maintenance by doing that. And you know what I've found to be wildly effective? routing my calcium reactor effluent to a secondary chamber with an air stone. Mm. I've, I've, I've done that before similarly where, uh, yeah, basically uh, similar to like your, the, the, the fish store box we talked about, right? Any box. Yeah. It could be a bottle. Yeah. It could be a specimen cup. It can be a cutoff water bottle clipped to the side of your tank with a little wedge of PVC using a, you know, a pH checker inside. <laughs> you know, we're bringing all these little hacks back together. I'm, I'm seriously, I have that. I have a secondary chamber. There's a bottle clipped to the side of the tank with a pH checker inside and an air stone. And in that, in that bottle, you know, where, or that secondary chamber, just having a basic, very small $10 piezoelectric hyper silent air pump, just bubbling, right? Because your flow rate through that secondary chamber is very low. Yeah. That will raise the pH from, I don't know, 6.3 to 7.5 with no effort. Just aeration. That's all, that's all it takes. And that reduces, you know, a good 75% of the carbon dioxide from going to my aquarium in the first place. So I don't need to route the water or the air through a CO2 scrubber. I've God, we put a pin in it like, whoa, just now. You know, why don't calcium reactor manufacturers just um, add a gassing tower that goes into your sump? You know, like you think about like degassing towers that, you know, public aquariums use, right? Yeah. And no, then just have right. an air stone pumping into a reaction chamber that's like an air water ratio. And then just have no, your. You're totally right. Because all these calcium reactors with that secondary chamber, they're just doing everything that everybody else did, man. I've checked the effluent coming from my calcium reactor. Let's just say the twin tech because it's, you know, kind of a high, a lower pH, so a higher CO2 concentration. It runs at about six. It goes through the uh, secondary chamber that I made because it doesn't come with one. And then it comes out about 6.2, which is nothing. It's like almost doing nothing. And then so if you have a, a, a average pH calcium reactor where the effluent might be 6.3, 6.4, do it. It gives you 0.1. For that entire chamber <laughs> and it never dissolves it almost never dissolves except in the stocco and dell textile calcium reactor where the ph is already very low right now how many uh secondary chambers of calcium reactors have you had mm, zero no never well in my experience that second chamber almost dissolves nothing yeah which leads me to believe that that secondary chamber that's helping to buffer the co2 is not really doing that much and so i, I you know, I've been on this kick of, of keeping my pH super high by doing simple things and having that second chamber or that final chamber where I just have a small, cheap, silent piezoelectric air pump just bubbling through um, buys me a ton, a ton of room. I would just get like a little two-inch acrylic tube, fill it up with, is it Spirorax or Spiro? Uh, Ciparax. Ciparax, the glass, yeah. you know? Just and then just have a mesh like bottom, right? You don't want it to fill up with water, and then just pump your airline into that, and then just have it like almost like a little mini trickle filter where the effluent is trickling through this media, 
and that's just getting fresh air pumped into it. We're both on the right track, right? We're both. I mean, maybe about, this won't work. I don't. No, no. But. You're. We're both talking about degassing the effluent. Yeah. Before it hits your protein skimmer, right? There is a cost associated with routing your effluent through your protein skimmer, and that's precipitation of, of the, line deposits yeah, on your needle wheel pump, pump, which is going to yeah. cause, you know, all kinds of problems down the road. So, um, yeah, I think that was a really awesome session of hacks, and we left some on the table. Yeah, really, really want to invite uh, everyone to tell us about theirs because, as me and Mark, that's going to be fun for me to read for sure. I can't wait. I really <laughs> can't wait. Mark and I, you know, we didn't share notes on this yet but every time he said like certain things i'm like oh yes i got that too you know that wash bottle is awesome um so very very fun very fun um cool well i guess we're gonna wrap up this session of reef therapy our 11th episode i'm gonna encourage everybody to uh, like, comment, and subscribe for the YouTube algorithm. That's what we're supposed to say. Also, review us on your favorite podcatcher, Spotify, Google Play, and uh, the service formerly known as iTunes. <laughs> uh, we, I think Mark and I can't wait to read your comments on, on these hacks because you know the community has come up with a lot of these ideas. and uh, I think this will be a, just a great way to uh, get more enjoyable enjoyment out of the hobby. For sure. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, yeah, this one, I, I enjoyed this one. Uh, I apologize to the podcasters that, you know, didn't get the visual show and tell, but hopefully we did a good job of describing what we were talking about. So you get an idea of, uh, what it is we're talking about. And if something really like triggers, like, Hey, that is a good idea. You can always just go check us, check the same episode on YouTube and fast forward to where we're, where we're talking about that thing. So, um, yeah, but yeah, very very good session, Mark. We're going to do it up. You know, we don't know what we're talking about next week, so if you have any uh, suggestions, go ahead and pop those down in the comments as well because we're going to talk about everything in the Reef Aquarium Hobby on the Long Enough Timeline, and we can't wait to see you guys on the next session of Reef Therapy. So thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll catch you guys on the next one. Take care.